Hello, welcome to I Have Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am your host, Brian Watson. Welcome to this wonderful excursion into questions and possibly answers, although I don't presume to have all the answers. This is my own little vanity project where I try to broaden myself and the rest of humanity at the same time in as many ways as humanly possible. This is episode six. Thank you for joining me. This podcast is a little more time specific because we'll be talking about a topic that is very much in the very much in the news at the present time that actually just resolved kind of yesterday. At the time of the recording of this podcast, it is Sunday, October 7th, and we'll be talking about, or I'll be talking about, the just-concluded Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, in a sort, after a fashion. I did try to do, what was it, a week and a half, two weeks ago, I think, I tried to do a quick hit on the Kavanaugh situation up to that point. This would have been the night before Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh had testified uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I was going to do a quick hit. I thought I'd get 15 minutes in. It took me an hour. There was just so much ground to cover, and really all I had was questions. Um, there was no point to the podcast beyond just raising tons and tons of questions. Now that the matter has resolved, or the confirmation of Kavanaugh as an appointment to the Supreme Court, the only thing I'm willing to say at this point about the entire process is that absolutely no one in this process behaved the way they should, well, not behave the way they should, no one handled this well. That's probably a better way to put it. No one in this process handled anything about this situation in any manner that was appropriate. Not the Republicans, certainly not the Democrats, not Judge Kavanaugh. The only issue I have with Dr. Ford is her unrealistic expectation of being able to present her accusations while preserving or being able to preserve her anonymity, which was her ultimate goal, was to remain anonymous. That, to me, was very unrealistic. That's the only fault with Dr. Ford that I have regarding her involvement in this process. But everyone else, from the media to, to the members of Congress, to the president, to everybody on all sides of this issue, nobody's handled this well. But before we go into the Kavanaugh-related question. Here's how you can reach the show. Email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter at IHaveQU849-22827, or just look up I Have Questions Podcast in the search function of your Twitter app. The show is on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash IHaveQuestionsPodcast. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners. It helps improve the visibility of the show, and it helps work towards me further establishing my cult of personality. The show is hosted on Anchor.fm and through their mobile app, and is also streaming on just about any place where you get or can get podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and a variety of other places as well. Please any and all feedback is appreciated and welcome. Granted, the show is only, on, is only five or six episodes in, and it's a very small podcast. I haven't done much to promote it as I could. 
Um, I'm kind of trying to do things by word of mouth at the present time, but please, feedback is greatly encouraged. And I got a feeling with this question, there may be some feedback. Please don't hesitate to contact the show. Your comments, your questions, your criticisms, your concerns could obviously end up on a future episode of the show. And I will also respond directly to any feedback provided. There's a, an amusing backstory to the question or the couple of questions that we're going to address to, on today's show. Last week, I'm at the dentist and I'm sitting there. They've just finished doing their thing. They've done the, the panoramic x-ray of my skull, which let me tell you is rather interesting because they showed it to you. And if I sound a little funny, it's because I have a head cold or I'm getting over a head cold, which they were kindly kind enough to point out through the panoramic x-ray. Oh yeah, you, you know, you've got a you're you've got a sinus that's completely full of mucus. Really? You don't say. Wow. Yeah, tell me about it. And then they also were kind enough to also point out to me that I have a deviated septum, which might explain my wonderfully nasally podcast podcast voice as I've listened to when I go back and listen to these things again or as I'm editing the show. But I'm sitting there. They've just done all their thing. They've cleaned my teeth. I'm waiting for the dentist to come in and do their little thing at the end where they check to make sure you don't have cancer of some kind and they're taking a look at all your teeth and looking at your x-rays and all this kind of stuff. I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for the dentist to come in and my phone rings. It's sitting in my lap. My phone rings and it's my wife, which is kind of odd because she knows I'm at the dentist. So she's calling me, so I'm thinking, uh-oh, this can't be good. I answer the phone. She's real happy and chipper and everything, and she's like, I just thought of a topic for your podcast. I'm sitting in the dentist chair waiting on the dentist. My wife calling me to tell me she has a topic for the show. And the only thing I can conclude once she tells me what the idea was, was she's been watching television. My wife is a big, when she doesn't, when she's not working on the days that she has off, uh, she'll watch the Today Show. She's a big Today Show fan. I think she'll even watch the Megyn Kelly portion of the show, uh, which she might be one of the handful of people who actually does watch the Megyn Kelly portion of the show. You want to talk about a bad investment there. NBC's paying her how much money, and she's doing absolutely nothing for them. Kind of just goes to show you where the, uh, the Fox audience is a very fickle audience. It's not so much the personality. It's not so much who's saying it as much as it is as what is being said. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly, yeah, he was big. He was born. We get rid of him. We get Tucker Carlson. Eh. Tucker Carlson says almost exactly the same things, except for he's way more white nationalist about it these days, more, way more xenophobic. Eh. No. No big deal. He's, yeah. He's fine. His, his audience is just as good. Anyway, she goes, she's, she calls me and she's very excited about this, uh, about this as much as she can be for somebody who has not shown much of an interest in the show. I'm not even entirely sure that she listens to it. Uh, that being said, I'm enti almost entirely certain she listens to no, podca no podcasts of any kind. So I'm not feeling left out there. But she's like, I just thought of something. You know this whole thing with Kavanaugh? Yes, there's just no way to get around Kavanaugh. It's been, it has been, in, it, for the last three weeks, it has been all-consuming in all things. She's like, imagine what, she goes, you know, they're talking about these things that Kavanaugh may or may not have done 35 years ago. She goes, imagine what it'll be like 35 years from now with the internet and social media. She goes, if Kavanaugh's being accused of, of this thing that was done 35 years ago, 
Imagine what 35 years from now, anybody who wants to be on the Supreme Court or run for elected office or anything like that, imagine how difficult it would be for them given social media and the internet. I was like, that is absolutely brilliant. That is an, that is an exceptionally brilliant question. And it might be a question that we come back to from time to time. But say it's 35 years from now, we've had 40 to 45 years of, inter of the internet, and not so much the internet, but 40 to 45 years of social media. Anybody born in the last 20 years has grown up in the internet age and has grown up and has really grown up in their formative years in the social media age in whatever form it, 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 it is or in all the various forms that it is now. I'm not just talking Facebook, but Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, any social media apps, Yahoo or not Yahoo, YouTube. And then you get into other as different aspects of the internet, webcamming. There's also you know, another, you know, other to get back to the social media aspects, Twitch or uh, Facebook Live or Facebook Watch or people that stream they're gaming through Facebook now that originally started with Twitch and then Facebook kind of got into the game and people have kind of, you know, switched platforms. But all of the various aspects of social media, imagine people that have grown up in the last 20 years, 35 years from now, when they're about Brett Kavanaugh's age and they're wanting to run for elected office, whether it's a member of governor or a member of Congress or president of the United States, or if they're going to be or they've been nominated for a cabinet post or a judgeship or the, to be a justice on the United States Supreme Court. Imagine what, how difficult that could be or what that would be like after you've had almost a half century of social media. And probably this, this individual, whoever it is, who's probably been at various points throughout their life involved either extensively or minorly, involved in social media in various platforms. What would that be like or what could that be like? The other thing to think about would be how would things be, how are things going to be different 35 years from now than, than they are now as far as how we deal with the internet and social media and the, I don't want to say the tearing down, but the erosion of barriers of privacy, voluntary, in most respects, voluntary erosion of privacy. I'm on Facebook personally. I'm on it all day long. I use it as my newsfeed. There's all kinds of articles in there. I share tons of articles every day. I have a Facebook page for the show. Basically, I use that as a kind of a, a mechanism for to get the show out there and also as a mechanism to receive feedback for the show. And the same with Twitter. I didn't have a Twitter handle until I went to, until I started the show. I found no virtue in going to Twitter. It's a nice little platform. It's way too busy for someone like me. Facebook is much more manageable for me. I've also been on it the longest that I'm the most comfortable with it. I've not done Snapchat. I've not done Instagram. Um, although my wife tells me I should do Instagram. I've not done those things. I've tried to consolidate my social media consumption because it can be all consuming. But what if you've, but where would we be or where do you think we would be 35 years from now, after we've had 40, 45, 50 years of social media consumption at that point. And 35 years from now, it's, it, 
I can't even imagine what social media will be like 35 years from now. You could be, it could be one of those things, it could be the technology gets to the point where you're live streaming 24 seven if you choose to do so. I mean, maybe you wear glasses or contact lenses or, or something or another that allows you, that provides a wireless feed to your phone or your watch or, or some kind of uh, implant under the skin that allows that that serves as a receiver and transmitter. It's hard to say what social media is going to look like 35 years from now or in the in-between spaces of now and then. And as a result of you know those changes, as a result of social media, how are we how would we be different 35 years from now than we are today? We're starting to come to grips with things with social media today. We've started to see, in some respects, the weaponization of, of social media. For example, James Gunn, a small example, would be James Gunn, the writer and director of the Guardians of the Galaxies movies. Uh, you had some conservative internet trolls find some old tweets of his from, I think, eight or nine years ago, where he was making, where he was posting insensitive jokes, would be one way to put it. But they were jokes. They weren't his personal views. They weren't. They weren't a philosophical. They were. It wasn't an expressing a point of view. It was conveying a joke. It was an attempt to be funny, which is another issue in, entirely. But those tweets were resurfaced, and as a result of those tweets being resurfaced, James Gunn was fired from writing and directing the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Um, another example would be Joy Reid, who's a a political pundit. She's got a, a weekend show on MSNBC. Similar internet, conservative internet trolls went and found her old, an old blog that she used to run 10 years ago, I believe, before she kind of became a media personality and found a bunch of blog posts, which had been archived. And uh, evidently she either didn't try to delete them or she didn't think that they would be archived. It's safe to say that anything that's pretty much anything that's put online through any kind of platform is probably going to be archived in some form or fashion. But evidently, these blog posts from 10 years ago were surfaced and they were blog posts that were very, at best, ambiguous, ambiguous about homosexual marriage or ambivalent about homosexual marriage, both probably. And at worst, she tacitly opposed uh, gay marriage and had issues with homosexuality. Joy Reid's now a, a liberal, very exposed liberal pundit now. I mean, she's out there quite a bit. I mean, she's got her own show on the weekends on MSNBC and all that kind of stuff. And she has a significant social media presence based off of that. But this surfaced fr from her. So you're starting to see as social media, Facebook and Twitter have kind of evolved over uh, or have as they've kind of, they're starting to, Facebook and Twitter are starting to develop a, a legacy or a lineage. Uh, they're starting to develop a history because they've been around long enough to where things can be where they were at their infancy and where things are now are very different. Another example is how people react to comedy now than, say, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. There is this significant tension regarding something being funny or something being told as a joke versus something being culturally or morally insensitive. The idea that a joke, that there is this growing argument that a joke just can't be a joke anymore, it, that a joke can't be a joke anymore, that there are some things you just can't say, and so forth, that, that a joke can't just be a joke. It has to have, it has to be, it has to have the, the requisite cultural sensitivities of the time 
or they shouldn't be said at all, and the comedians that say them shouldn't say them at all, and they should be that there should be some kind of exclusion to the point where you have a lot of lot of stand-up comedians, and these would be older stand-up comedians who have said they won't do college campuses anymore because the political the environment of political correctness is such that they cannot they cannot function in that environment. Now there is probably a degree of kids get off my lawn type of thing going on there, but it does raise a question about, but that wouldn't happen in the social media age, or that wouldn't have happened in the pre-social media age. I'll say that. And it would be interesting, 50 years ago, you got guys like Lenny Bruce who are getting arrested for doing, for telling dirty jokes in nightclubs because the authorities then people in, of influence had, didn't think that that was an appropriate thing to do. And he would get arrested for just for, you know, if you, heck, if you used profanity in a nightclub, you'd get arrested for it. Lenny Bruce kind of made it a, he became a martyr, a free speech martyr in that regard because he would do that. You're kind of seeing the same thing now, only it's not involving profanity, it's involving the expression of certain types of jokes. But there's that tension going on right now. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 35 years from now, what are going to be the issues, what are going to be the social media issues or the social media norms? What's going, what are going to be the societal norms? What are going to be the social media norms 35 years from now? And how would those norms influence or dictate how we address political candidates, people who want to be judges? Anybody that does anything that requires public approval in a public sphere or in a public environment. 20 years ago, during the, um, during the Clinton Monica Lewinsky impeachment, there was a discussion of what, there was a debate about whether this, about whether it was the public's right to know whether the president was having an affair with an intern or how much does the public, well, how much, do, how much right does the public have to know about the personal affairs of elected officials, um, in particular the president. 40, 50 years ago, 50, 55 years ago when Kennedy was president, um, and when you had, or other politicians, they had affairs all the time, and the press kept it, and the press knew about these affairs, and knew that, they probably knew that Kennedy was involved with all kinds of women, including Marilyn Monroe. Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson had uh, multiple mistresses. Nixon, I don't think, probably did, because he's just doesn't seem like one of those people. He just, Nixon seems like arguably the most asexual president ever. About the only way he'd probably could have gotten a hard on would be if he was being able to destroy somebody on his enemies list or if he was, or maybe while he was bombing Cambodia, I don't know. But back then, it was well known who, what elected officials were having in affairs and who their mistresses were and all this kind of stuff. And none of it was publicized. None of it was put in the paper. None of it was put, none of it was put out there because the press viewed that as that's not for public consumption. How does that affect anything? What does that have to do with the Cold War or the Cuban Missile Crisis or uh, civil rights or, you know, what does that have? What does it matter that the president is cheating on his wife when you've got these big issues you have to deal with? And that clearly changed later on with, say, Gary Hart. In 1988, the whole monkey business thing with Donna Rice, who turned out to be, who turned into a, uh, a conservative, conservative activist in her own right. I wonder what happened to her. Kind of started with Gary Hart, and then obviously you had Clinton, who had, I mean, that was a campaign issue in 92, was his various proclivities and infidelities. And it stalked him. 
throughout his presidency, and it stalked him did a lot of damage to his wife's political ambitions as well. Although I think it also kind of kickstarted his wife's political ambitions because if, if there was no Lewinsky affair, Hillary Clinton probably doesn't run for a Senate in 2000. She totally used the sympathy factor from the Lewinsky matter, the Lewinsky affair, to springboard her political career into in New York. We've had those debates about privacy. Well, in the social media age, and we're still having those debates about privacy in the social media age, but now the question is going to become as we move forward is when you're in the social sphere, when you're in the social media sphere, when you're in the internet sphere, as we move forward and as the younger generations become older and they've been involved in social media or the social media has existed their entire lives, how do societal norms change with along with that how do how do our perceptions of each other and of elected officials and what criteria or standards do we hold them to as we go forward and i thought of some questions one of the questions i asked was how would we interpret or address a decades old or decades long social media presence of a candidate or nominee with a reviewable archive it's safe to say 35 years from now if you've been on social media for any period of time it's going to be archived it's going to be recoverable and it's going to probably and it's going to get out there if i were to run for elected office tomorrow or 10 years from now it's safe to say my social media presence my f- presence on facebook and in with regards the episodes of this podcast are going to be reviewed. My Facebook presence for the last almost 10 years is going to get looked at. Every comment that I've probably made on any on anybody else's Facebook feed about any story or any com- or anything that they posted is probably going to get scrutinized. Imagine what that's going to be like for somebody who's been in, on social media probably their entire lives. Another way to think about it is what if somebody chooses not to be on social media? 35 years from now, they've never been on social media. They've never had a Facebook account, assuming, or the, the equivalent of Facebook in the future, or Twitter, or they've not done podcasts, or they have zero social media presence at all. How would a society that has grown up and that has been immersed in social media and the internet for decades, how would we look at that person who has chosen to have a zero, who has chosen to have a minimal or non-existent social media presence? How trustworthy, how trustworthy would we view them? It would be the inverse. Nowadays, if somebody doesn't have a social media presence, it's kind of like, eh, no big deal. Okay, so they chose not to do these things. But 35 years from now, when you've got people who were born and raised and grew up in social media and lived their adult lives in social media, and then somebody comes along who has zero, little to no social media presence and never has for whatever reason, how would we view them? Would we consider them trustworthy? Would we look at them suspiciously? Would we ask ourselves, what do they have to hide? Would that person warrant greater scrutiny than um, someone who's been on social media for 55 years? You know there's going to be things in your past. How do you, what do you do to address those concerns? If there are concerns, how do you anticipate what could be out there? Another thing to think about is there could be an entire cottage industry that develops entirely based on sanitizing your social media history. 
I'm not sure if that would be possible to do because just about anything and everything is preserved or archived in some form or fashion. But there could be a way to, through legal mechanisms, through technological mechanisms, a combination of the two, to be able to either sanitize or eliminate your social media presence, either in a way that is conspicuous in which people can tell that you've cleaned up your social media history. Everybody talks about it now, you know, so-and-so posted a tweet and then within five minutes or within two hours, that tweet was removed or deleted, but yet somebody's still able to preserve it. And there's probably a history somewhere, probably at Twitter, there is an archive of that tweet that could be recovered with a court order or a subpoena or something like that, or just by good old fashioned hacking or slicing, depending on your vernacular. You could, there could be an entire industry that develops around this idea. And then if there isn't a way to sanitize your social media history, if you're the individual with that history, what do you do to address that? How do you, depending on what's out there, and it could be a variety of things that are out there, depending on your proclivities at, the, at that particular time, how do you address those things? How do you overcome the obstacle of your own social media legacy? And the other thing is, is that in regards to social media is at what point, and this comes to another question with Kavanaugh that I'll come to in a little bit, but at what, at what point does something be, remain relevant versus a residue of history or no longer relevant? For example, what if someone was used to be, say, 30, 35 years ago on social media and they were, to a certain degree or, or to a large degree, racist or sexist or homophobic? And let's say that was when they were in their teens or their early 20s. Do you hold views that someone had in their youth against them presently? Do you, and I'm not talking actions, but I'm talking just viewpoints, point of views. If they held that view at that time and it's been 35 years later, do you hold that against them? Another example would be, you know, if they're members of offensive, and again, I'm kind of dating myself here. If they were members of offensive Facebook groups in their teens or their 20s. And offensive, I understand offensive is a relative term and what offends one person doesn't necessarily offend another person. But I mean, what if it was something as, as kind of trivial as a f they, they like to share or like they were members of meme groups that shared truly offensive memes and that was the extent of what they did. Or the flip side of that though is what if they were into, what if they were part of Facebook groups that were into snuff films or were into something more egregious and more pervasively offensive. And that's the extent of it. There's no indication that whatever they were, whatever the group was about, that they engaged in that behavior, but they were simply members of the group. And they may have even contributed uh, to the group. Do you hold that against them? Another example would be, what if a woman in her late teens or early 20s did internet porn 30, 35 years ago? She did internet porn. It could have been she had her own website. It could have been she was just made some videos. It could have been she did camming. Ooh, another example would be men or women that use um, dating apps like Tinder or Grindr or um, something like that. What if they were men or women who were escorts or flat out prostitutes? 
at what point do you, at what point is that, do you hold that against them? Do you, it, does it depend on the position? I mean, does it, at what point do you let those things, at what point do those things remain relevant decades on versus a matter of their personal history? Here's one that could be relevant. What if a man was an incel in his youth? You've probably, if you've not heard of incels, incels are these men who are online who think that women should sleep with them or have sex with them because that's what they want. It's kind of a, it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect uh, correlation, but those guys that you knew when you were younger or even when you're older, I guess, you know, age is not really determinative here, but those guys who always complained about girls who wouldn't go out with them because they were too nice or why do girls only like assholes or go out with jerks or that type of thing? Why do those guys, why do girls go to gravitate to those guys? But me, but I'm the nice guy and I'm the, I'm the nice sweet guy because that's what the, all the girls tell me, but yet they're not, they don't want to date me or they don't, they don't want to have sex with me or that type of thing. Incels are kind of like that, except for they have, they're way more extreme. They are very much misogynistic. They have, they don't view women as equals. They basically view women as a polite term would be concubine, but basically they view women as the primary, that women are there to service them. What if a man 40 years ago, 40 years from now, was an incel? He was in incel groups. He, he shared incel stories. He was really active in it. He was on websites or wherever those people go, wherever they gravitate to. What if he was that way 40 years ago, but there's no indication that he's that way now or, and that he's not been that way for, say, decades? How relevant is that? What if a man or a woman had engaged in revenge porn against someone else? That, could, I think, could be relevant. Because that is reflective, that's an indicator of character, okay? Anything that you do in a vengeful manner could be reflective of character. Now, granted, it could be reflective of, it's, it's directly reflective of your character at that time, but it could also be reflective of your character going forward, especially if there's been no recognition of the behavior and acknowledgement of the wrongness of the behavior. What if they had searched for, not necessarily possessed or acquired, but searched for child pornography? That's a complicated issue because what you probably would not know is the basis or the context in which that search was conducted. You don't know what they were looking for. You, you may know what they were looking for, but you don't know why they were looking for it. And you don't know if it was for that one period of time. What if it was one search, one time only? versus a bunch of searches over the span of an extended period of time? What if they were looking, researching, what kind of search results were they following up on? I mean, if you could get access to their online search history, where are they going and what are they looking at? I mean, if they're, if you're, if they're researching child pornography, say on Wikipedia or uh, news sites or, or research sites or something like that, say an institute or the Justice Department or something like that, that'd be one thing. But what if they did that? What if they did that when they were, say, 15 years old and there's no indication that they ever did it ever again? What if you had access to the entirety of someone's online search history? 
You got to see, you got access to everything that they ever Googled ever. How relevant is that? How important would that be? Again, what you don't know is you don't know the purpose or the context behind the searches. You have no additional data. You have no additional information, except for maybe what that person who was conducting the searches provides on their own, unless you could somehow find witnesses. Oh yeah, I was with him and he Googled that. This is what he was looking for. You see this a lot with in uh, criminal trials now, more and more. The one I remember most distinctly is the Casey Anthony murder trial, where she was, she Googled stuff right before her daughter disappeared. Uh, stuff that was highly suspicious. I think, who was it, Scott Peterson, the guy who killed his pregnant wife, Lacey, didn't he, I think he did some, he had a very suspicious internet search history right before she disappeared or right around the time she disappeared. Again, all you have is the search history. You don't have the context or the background by which for the basis of that search. All you have is the search results themselves. How relevant is that? It's like they say, don't, don't Google how to, how to make a bomb in the post 9-11 world. Don't Google how to make a bomb you'll immediately get the attention of the federal government. You'll have the FBI knocking on your door. Imagine if you've got 40 years of search history for a person and you see, get to see everything that they've ever looked up or looked for ever. They were, if it was a guy and he's looking and he's doing erectile dysfunction research or Googling things about erectile dysfunction, is he, okay, why is a man interested in erectile dysfunction? Maybe because he has it. Or you learn about, you know, you get access to their entire search history. You might learn things about their porn habits. What if someone had engaged in identity theft or other online illegal behavior that was never caught decades earlier? This is kind of a parallel to the Kavanaugh situation. The accusation against Kavanaugh was from 35 years ago. It was not reported at the time. There was no investigation conducted at the time. So now you're having to deal with things decades after the fact, without any contemporaneous context or investigation conducted. What if someone who 40 years from now is running for elected office or they're a nominee or a candidate for something, what if it was discovered that at some point in their past, say in the distant past, they'd engaged in identity theft or some other online illegal behavior? They were never investigated or prosecuted at the time, but at the time, it was illegal or in the present. It's illegal, but back then it would not have been. How do you address that? Do you kind of address it the same way as Barack Obama smoked marijuana when he was in high school and in college? It was illegal then, or somebody, let's say somebody shoplifted or they stole stuff from a store. I know kids, I knew kids when I was in middle school and in high school who stole stuff from the local drugstore kind of on a regular basis. What do you do with that information? Is it relevant? Now, granted, we come back to it could be a character could be a character question. Not all illegal behavior is equal. Identity theft is a requires a certain degree of effort. So that might be you know, and then there's the question: Okay, what if they only did it once? There's a difference between what if they only did it once, but uh, as opposed to a, a bunch of times, uh, a pattern of behavior. Those things are relevant, um, I would think, and it could be a matter of character, a reflection on character. It also could be a matter of reflection on character as to how the individual in the present addresses those allegations, those verified, not necessarily allegations, but those verified actions in the past. 
And we're not talking about allegations here. We're talking about things that can be verified. There's no he said, she said type of thing going on with that, except for maybe, you know, in the terms of applying context. So, and granted, all of this is in the context of how pervasive or accessible and recoverable our digital presence will be, and also how we view each other, elected officials, and others that we put in power at that point in time. How will our ideas about behavior change or evolve as the, the social media internet age matures and develops, as generations that are born into, raised, in, raised within, and mature into, or mature with the digital age, with the social media age, with the internet age? How accommodating or forgiving would we be of someone's digital presence or activity? Or, for the lack thereof, come back to that question of how suspicious would we be of someone who has little to no digital presence, or they have a digital presence for a limited period of time and nothing else? How would we perceive that person? So these were all very interesting questions, all of which evolved from this brilliant idea that my wife had that she felt compelled to contact me about while I'm sitting in the, in the dentist's chair. It will be interesting. The nice thing about I'm young enough, I'm 43, is that over the next 30 to 35 years, I'll get to witness this happen. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with my children because they're going, they're growing, they are the generation that's going to, that was born into and growing up into the social media internet age where phones are everywhere and everything the, the, the connectedness, everything is connected to everything. And that will only, I think that will only manifest itself further and in new and in different ways as the years go on. And it'll be interesting to see how they view that relative to how I will view that at those points in time at the same time, or how my parents will view these things. I'm willing to bet that a lot of the questions that I've brought up here if I were to pose those to my parents or to any one of their age group or generation, that their views on those would probably be different than my than those of my generation or those of the generation behind me, millennials and so forth. The other aspect of that is obviously, of course, there is the tribalism aspects of this. How you view these things might will, could greatly depend upon who they involve, and who they involve relative to, for lack of a better term, the team that you're rooting for. And we see that now, we've seen that before, and we'll probably see it, see this something very similar at that time. So there is that consideration, but removing the partisanship, removing the ideological, liberal, social, liberal, conservative, moderate, all points in between, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever, Viewpoints. It'd be interesting to see in a, on a uh, how society views these various multiple aspects of social of the of the internet age and the social media presence and so forth. A 
soon as my wife told me about her the, her show topic idea, I immediately started writing everything down as soon as as soon as I got to work, which it was on a Friday, so I wasn't super productive. Going to be super productive anyway, probably. But I started writing down all the stuff before I forgot it. Something that came up that I thought of in regards to came back to Kavanaugh more directly. And that was, let's say 35 years ago, Christine Blasey Ford goes to the police immediately. The police do an investigation. There's a criminal prosecution and Brett Kavanaugh at age 17 is convicted of sexual assault, of exactly what she accused him of, of, of doing, exactly the way she says it happened. It was a sexual assault or possibly an attempted rape, depending on what the statute would have read in Maryland, which is, which is, I believe, which is where this occurred at the time. But he's convicted, and he serves time in his youth, whether it's juvenile detention or if, if he's prosecuted as an adult and sent to adult jail for a period of time. He does his time. He's convicted. He does his time. He then proceeds to have the exact same life that he had, say, from the moment he graduated prep school. He goes to Yale. He gets he becomes a lawyer. He gets a law he gets a law degree, he becomes a lawyer. He clerks for Anthony Kennedy. He works for the Bush administration. They appoint him to the DC, you know, they appoint him to the DC, the DC Court of Appeals. Would he be, with that conviction, would he be qualified to sit on the Supreme Court? Does that conviction at 17 disqualify him from being on the Supreme Court? Or let's backpedal a little bit and say disqualify him from being on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Is there a limit to rehabilitation? Is there only so far that you can go to rehabilitate yourself? Once you've done that thing and you've done your time, you've paid your penance, as determined by the law, not necessarily by society, but by the law acting on behalf of society, because we are, this is a democracy, is there a limit to, his, to rehabilitation? Is there only so far you can or should be able to go once you've committed a crime? Or more directly, a violent crime. Robbery, theft, drunk driving, those type of things, provided you didn't injure anybody. You got drunk, you got in a car, you drove, you got pulled over, end of story. Is there a limit to rehabilitation or is there a limit up to forgiveness for certain crimes that have been properly adjudicated? And I'm not talking about, you know, so-and-so, I'm not talking about so-and-so got away with murder or so-and-so or I mean, this, the, the situation with Kavanaugh as it actually exists where there's the allegation or the accusation and nothing else. This is if he had been tried convicted and served time for it. It's on the record. There is no dispute. There's no ambiguity here. There's no, there's nothing for Lindsey Graham or Chuck Grassley or Mitch McConnell or Donald J. Trump to hang their hat on and say, oh, no ambiguity that they can cling to. Is there a limit to his rehabilitation? Because the purpose of prison, at least we like to tell ourselves this, a lot of people do anyway, conservatives and Republicans are probably like, no, no, the purpose of prison is to punish. Okay, how does that benefit society? Besides keeping somebody off the street, once you let them go, you've done nothing to address the underlying problem. Prison as a deterrent in and of itself is, and I think this has been demonstrated quite, quite consistently, prison as a deterrent in and of itself is, is not a deterrent at all. 
It's the same with the death penalty. You say, well, the death penalty acts as a deterrent. No, it doesn't. That's even when we were executing people all the time. Do you think the crime rate's gone down in Texas because they execute a lot of people compared to everybody else? No. It's not a deterrent. But the purpose of prison is supposed to do two things simultaneously, punish and rehabilitate. Prison does a really good job of punishing. Prison does a horrible job, for the most part, in rehabilitating. The because of the perceived notion that rehabilitation makes you look weak on crime. Why should I, you know, why should we give these, these criminals a leg up? Why should we do anything to help them or give them a leg up for when they get out of here? Because you don't want them back? Because you don't want them harming other people or doing other things or worse? Because if they come back, that's expensive? You're already paying for them to be in prison anyway. You might as well get some use, you know, you might as well do something useful to make sure that they don't become a burden on you in the future. But the purpose of prison is to punish and re rehabilitate simultaneously. If somebody's rehabilitated themselves, should they have all the same opportunities as someone who's never committed a crime, who's never gone to prison, who's never been convicted of anything? Should they have the same opportunities coming out of prison for the rest of their lives as someone who never went to prison at all? Is there a limit to what we will forgive, or is there a limit to rehabilitation? You can only rehabilitate yourself so far. You, we see this with um, prisoners who get, um, they go to prison, and while they're in there, they get their GED or their college degree, or some of them go to law school and become lawyers when they get out. So for example, if I'm 20 years old, and I've ran over somebody with my car, while I was drunk and I killed them and I went to prison for it, could I be president of the United States? If you were convicted of sexually assaulting someone and you went to prison, you did your time, and you never did anything like this ever again, and you lived a virtuous life after that as much as a person can, is there a limit as to what you should be able to accomplish? If you're a convicted felon and you've con been convicted of a violent crime, should you be allowed to be on the Supreme Court? It's different when you're running for public office, when you're, being in, when you're running for election. That gets to be decided by the voters. There's absolutely nothing that says that a, an appointment to the Supreme Court has to be, one has to be a lawyer, two has to be a judge, or three has any kind of legal experience previously. We've appointed former presidents to the Supreme Court. We've appointed uh, members of Congress to the Supreme Court. There are, there are no requisite qualifications to be appointed to the Supreme Court. None at all. You have to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. That's it. I could be on the Supreme Court right now. I could be nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. I don't even think there's an age requirement. You have to be at least 35 to be president. I think there's an age requirement for the House of Representatives or the Senate, one of the two. There's no such requirement to be on the Supreme Court. Truth be told, if Donald Trump wanted to nominate Jimmy Carter to the Supreme Court. There's nothing that stopped him from doing so. And Jimmy Carter is like 95 or 96 years old. Is there a limit to rehabilitation? Can you or should you only be allowed to go so far based on something that happened in your youth or when you were much, much younger? How long should something like that stay with you or be used or held against you? Now, granted, it depends entirely upon what you do after that. That obviously has a lot to do with it. But if you were convicted of raping a woman, only happened once, you went to prison, you did your time, acknowledged what you did was wrong, tried to live a virtuous life as much as humanly possible to make up for the horrible thing that you did so long ago. How long or in what way should that be held to your detriment? 
That's a question I can't answer. I have no answer to that question. I don't know. I think there are so many variables that would be involved. I don't think there's a blanket answer that could be given to that. I think it would entirely be case by case. What if it wasn't a man? What if it was a woman? Again, I, I don't think there's a blanket answer. At least I can't come up with a blanket answer. There may be one, but I don't know. I think it would be entirely case by case type of situation. What if it was a what was a different kind of violent crime? What if it was what if it was involuntary manslaughter versus murder? What if it was voluntary manslaughter? Um, what if it was vehicular homicide? What if it was you were convicted of murder, but it looks an awful lot like self-defense? You were exonerated under the standard ground law in Florida, but it looks an awful lot like you murdered somebody. There's no actual conviction. You were acquitted, but it looks an awful lot like you murdered somebody. Is there a limit to rehabilitation or forgiveness? We like to say we were forgiving people and we can forgive just about anything. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I think there are a lot of things that we can't, can't and shouldn't forgive. But at the same time, we also have this this delicate balance, or this fine line, I should say, not a delicate balance, but a fine line on a variety of these type of things. These distinctions that have to be, that can and should, or have to be not necessarily applied, but considered. And how do those distinctions, how significant are they in how we address who's in front of us now and what they're doing or trying to do now against what they did decades ago. And in some circles, there, you know, there are some people that say you, that's unforgivable, they can never be forgiven, there's, there's no, there can be no rehabilitation. To this day, uh, there was just a guy who was in this country who just got extradited to Germany because he was a guard at a concentration camp for, from a war that ended 70 years ago. And he's gonna be prosecuted and convicted. I don't know. I have no idea what this man has done since then or what he's done in this country. This is simply a question that I put out there for discussion, for conversation. So feel free to discuss and converse and explore and provide me with your conclusions, your feedback, your observations, your questions. And here is how you do that. The email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com on Twitter. Um, just look up I Have Questions Podcast in the search, search function of your Twitter app or if you actually go to the Twitter webpage. The Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash I Have Questions Podcast. Any comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns, especially on something like this, is greatly appreciated or on any of the other episodes so far, on any of the other topics that have come up so far, or if you have ideas or suggestions for future episodes. I am always looking for help with additional content. Please rate and review the show um, through whatever service that you receive your podcasts from or where you receive this show from. Reviews and ratings uh, help expand the profile of the show. And then tell your friends. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, tell anybody that you want about the show. Even if you just want to tell them about how incredibly awful it is and you have to hear it for yourself because, yeah, it's just that bad. I'm okay with that. An audience is an audience. I don't care where it comes from. I don't, well, I don't want to say that. I don't care where it comes from or who it is or that type. There are limits to that, I suppose. Um, there's some small limits that could be applied to that, but they're not that big of limits. This has been I Have Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time and for your patronage, and good night.